get with Joshua and get through with him here right away and then uh, try to set the stage for a meaningful look at the book of Revelation with some of these Wednesday nights. We'll be looking at Revelation for about six months on uh, Sunday nights beginning on January the 1st. And uh, when the calendar fell like that to start it on New Year's Day, I thought to myself, well, now there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't want to come to church on New Year's night. They might miss the first quarter of the Orange Bowl or something. And uh, I then decided uh, if they care anything about the Word and Revelation in particular, let them come to church on New Year's night because that's when we're going to start Revelation. We're going to try to set that up and start uh, looking at it. Uh, so, you know, the only person I'm really fear, I'm afraid of, who teaches or preaches the Bible is the one that tells you they've got Revelation figured out. You ever run across anybody like that, just stay away from them. They're crazy. Uh, God is smart enough to have laid Revelation out in words of one syllable or less if that's what he wanted to do. But he didn't do it that way, and that isn't what he wanted to do, and that isn't what he intended to do. And there is a built-in and purposeful vagueness about some of the detail of events and so forth in the book of Revelation. And I think we're going to have to have a general understanding of the different ways of looking at Revelation. Uh, I won't get into it now, but there are people who think Revelation has no relevance to history, past, present, or future. There are people who think it has relevance only to past history. There are people who think that every word of it is literal, uh, which defies much of what we know about Scripture. Uh, Literal, exact, and uh, that there will literally be little... Uh, flying things with wings that look like horses and so forth, uh, about the size of locusts. And then there are people who believe that Revelation uh, dictates what is going to happen when history draws to a close, and I'm among those. But even given the historical significance of it for the future, there's still a lot of different ways of looking at it. When we can wrap uh, Joshua up, we're going to look at the different models, the historical model, the dispensational model, the symbolism and all of that, the way people look at it. And then perhaps if I present the text and we look at what Revelation says, God will illumine you to draw some of your own conclusions about the text of Revelation and what it means without me trying to uh, give you every detail as I understand it. Joshua chapter 10, the fight of the Lord. Now, through chapter 12, Joshua moves uh, in narrative form from dealing with sin on the other side of the river and cleansing the parting of Jordan and the events of conquest in the land of promise. Then the remainder of the book is of a little different nature and perhaps uh, as far as dealing with the text meaningfully, when we get past chapter 12, uh, it won't take much time because there is less uh, information that we need to be deeply concerned about in those remaining chapters. But in this chapter, if you'll remember from last week, if you were here, and I think I was here Uh, last Wednesday night. I'm not really sure. Uh, If you remember from chapter 9, and I gave you a sneak preview of chapter 10, Israel did a very stupid thing. They they had learned one lesson, they thought, at Ai and Bethel, and that was when a little bitty group of villagers defeated them soundly and ran them off in humiliation. They should have learned during that experience that God was always to be the boss. They were always to check in with God, and They had broken the covenant, which was, the covenant simply said, God was in charge and they'd obey. That's that's what the covenant was. That was the whole agreement. 
They were supposed to do what God said. Well, it looked like after the defeat at Ai and Bethel and then after the victory there that they had learned that lesson, but not so. For we found in chapter 9 that no sooner did worldlings under false pretenses, the enemy, that they were sworn to fight and to eliminate in the name of the Lord, no sooner did some of that enemy come uh, falsely and, and lie to them and flatter them than they fell for it hook, line, and sinker and made an unholy alliance that was to haunt Israel for the next 400 years. A false alliance with the world. Now, in verse 10 tells us some of the effect of that. This is chapter 10, rather. This is the only the beginning. For there are other places scattered throughout the literature that deals with the period of the kings from Saul through the prophets that talk about Gibeon and problems with the people of Gibeon. But now beginning with the first part of chapter 10, I've called verses 1 to 7 a strange ally. Now the Gibeonites had deceived Israel. They'd made a treaty with them, a, a treaty of non-aggression and of mutual protection because Israel thought they were going to get something for nothing from the world. The Gibeonites had told them they came from the other side of the world. They had told them they had come because they'd heard glowing reports of their fame and their prowess in battle and the blessings of God on their nation. And so they said to themselves, Shall we not ally ourselves with these people? We might get something out of it, out of it, but it certainly won't hurt us and it won't cost us anything. Well, they were wrong. You'd, it always costs to make an alliance with the world. When they discovered the deception, the people of Gibeon said, We are your slaves. You just tell us what you want to do. Just don't kill us because you've given your word. And they reminded them of their unholy alliance and they persuaded Israel to continue in disobedience to God because they'd given their word. It's not a very good reason to disobey God because you gave your word. If you're wrong, admit it and do something about it. And so they said, don't kill us, you promised, but we'll do anything you want us to do. That's all you have to say. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. Well, then they said, this might not be such a bad deal after all. Uh, after We're getting a whole city of slaves out of this. We're going to get a lot of free labor out of Gibeon. Well, where the world is concerned, there's never a rose without a thorn. Chapter 10 tells us about the first of many thorns they've discovered in their alliance with Gibeon. No sooner had Gibeon made their alliance than the king of Jerusalem and the other kings of the Amorite people heard that Gibeon had made their alliance with Israel and it burned them up so badly as the world and the devil and the flesh will do. They distracted themselves from focusing on Joshua and the people of Israel, and they turned on their own kind and started a war of eradication against the people of Gibeon. Well, what happened? Did the Gibeonites shut their city gates and protect themselves? No, they sent a messenger to Joshua, and they sent to him, saying, Come to us and help us for the armies of the Amorites have gathered themselves against us. 
Joshua was under the Lord's command and the people of Israel following him were moving at God's command to capture and conquer the land of promise. But now they find themselves with a very strange ally and they find themselves committed to fighting to protect their enemies. Strange alliance in a strange situation for the people of God to find themselves in. The five kings of the Amorites, of these cities of Jerusalem and Hebron and Jarmuth and Lachish and Eglon, gathered themselves together. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua, saying, Hurry up, slack not thy hand. Hurry up. Come to us quickly. Save us. Help us. And as we mentioned last week, because the people of Israel cared more about their credibility and their image with the world of keeping their word. They cared more about that than they cared about obeying God. They found themselves bound to fight on behalf of their own enemies and the enemies of God. And you know it is always a mistake no matter how harmless no matter how innocuous the alliance may seem, it is always a mistake for a Christian individually or the people of God collectively to find themselves bound by alliance and allegiance to the world. But it's a hard thing not to do. And in fact, it's a very easy thing to do to find ourselves, whatever our motives, and they're usually very good, just like Israel's were, to find ourselves rationalizing an alliance with the world, blaming the whole thing on God, and then finding out that we've gotten ourselves into a very difficult situation. Here's a strange ally indeed. Then in verses 8 to 27, this is a rather exciting narrative. I've just called it a strong Lord. Now, God helps Israel in spite of their sin, and that's the way God is with us. We need to, be, we need to remember that we, there's never a time when we want God to give us justice. And the next time you find yourself uh, crying for your rights, remember that the only right you've got by birth is hell. That's the only right you've got. That's all you deserve. That's your right. And when you find yourself crying for your rights or thinking that you've been treated poorly or that you've been offended or whatever or so forth or so on and ad infinitum, ad nauseam, just remember one thing. If God gave you what you deserved, it wouldn't be very nice. And so when you're thinking about other people, just recall that they don't, deserve what they deserve any more than you deserve what you deserve because Jesus died for all of us and of course at the risk of playing the tune too often to be offended is sin great peace have they who love thy law and nothing shall offend them Psalm 119, 165 to be, to be offended is proof positive that you are not dead to yourself and that Jesus is not Lord of your life 
For if he is Lord, then the pain, the pressure, the problems, the offense, all of that is his. It is on him. It does not touch you if Jesus is Lord. Here is a strong Lord. He helps his people not because they deserve it, but because he has committed himself to them. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God never treats us the way that we treat him. And when we have no faith in him in our particular need and situation, when we do not believe him, when we do not claim his promise and walk with him in obedience, he remains faithful to us. Not because of what we are, but because of what He is. And so God helps Israel, as we read in these verses, because of His commitment to them, not their commitment to Him. Now what He does, He drives the enemy before them. Joshua needs time to fight the battle so that the enemy may be defeated. Joshua calls on God and he calls on the elements of nature in the name of God. And the sun stands still in the heavens for about the space of a whole day while the battle is fought and the victory is won. The Lord delivered up, verse 12 says, the Amorites before the children of Israel. Verses 8 to 10 tell us that the Lord slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And as they 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 fled. The Lord rained down great stones from heaven upon them and, and killed the enemies of His people. Now I think there's another interesting thing that when God's people ally themselves to defend the enemies of God on behalf of those enemies, then it is a different situation. But the enemies of Gibeon were also the enemies of Israel. And God was defeating his own enemies while Israel had preserved others who were his enemy and not at peace with what he had done. Joshua cried in the sight of the company. You see, Joshua, verse 12, Joshua put God on the spot. Aren't we afraid to do that sometime? We want to do what God wants us to do individually and collectively, any way you want to look at it. We want to do what God wants to do, and we want to obey God, but we don't, want to, we don't want to do that unless we can see a way out. Folks, that's sin. If in the course of our life as a church, if in the course of your experience as a Christian, there has never come a time in your life when you came to a decision that defied reason, that defied pragmatism, that defied logic, that defied the ledger, and you had to obey God anyway. If you've never been there, you've never let Jesus be Lord of your life. Because if Jesus is Lord, you can bet that there are going to come times when you've got no reason to do anything other than God said so. And that's all there is to it. Amen belongs right there. That's the truth. You see, Joshua put God on the spot. Joshua didn't go over and get behind a rock and get down on his knees and say, Oh God, help us. Joshua stood before the whole nation, addressed the sun in the heavens, and said, 
stand still. He was God's man. He was in God's will. He was acting in accordance with God's command. And when he spoke in the name of God, everything around him obeyed in the name of God. Now, our needs are not exactly of that nature. But when you as an individual Christian stand within the center of God's will and obedience and you stand on the authority of God's word, God will do it through you the way he did it through Joshua. For when the people of God obey God, the resources of God in total are committed to meeting their needs. It's just that simple. It's as simple as 2 plus 2 equals 4. When you obey God, God acts and God preserves. When you do not obey God, you bear the consequences. It is that simple. It is that easy. But it's that hard. Because we've got to be willing to have more faith in God than we have in our own ability to reason. Isaiah says, quoting the Lord, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my ways above yours. If Jesus is Lord, it's going to mean that we do things that don't make sense simply because God said so. And when you get right down to it, that makes more sense than anything else. Because it all belongs to God. We belong to God. The earth, its galaxy, and its universe are a small part of His possession. And the only thing that makes sense is to do what God says. That's the only thing that makes sense. Well, they deal with those folks near Gibeon, and then the five kings flee. I, don't, I wonder if that's symbolic of the way things usually go in the world, where there's always, there's always somebody leading the way, leading people to do the wrong thing. See, the devil counterfeits everything God does, and, and the devil's crowd has their leaders the same way that God's crowd does. But you know, when the battle got hot, the guys that started the whole thing ran off. They ran and hid themselves in a cave and left their armies floundering on the battlefield. By the way, that's the way the devil always treats the people that follow him. He always pays in counterfeit coin. He only gives us cotton candy type of existence. You ever eaten cotton candy? Anybody, are you awake? You ever eaten cotton candy? Are you sure? You know, it, it looks like a lot until you bite it. And it's gone. Well, that's the way the devil is. He always pays off that way. He pays in counterfeit coin. You go to spend it. It's no good. He pays you what you deserve, which is not what God does, praise His name. And He always pays in empty promises. Well, when the battle was raging, the fellows that got it started took off and went and hid in a cave. Well, Joshua knew where they were, and he didn't want to mess with them again, so he just covered the mouth of the cave with stones, went about his business, and later came back and had 
the mouth of the cave uncovered, brought them out, and in the name of God executed the judgment that they deserved. And here is a strong Lord. They had moved to Jericho at God's word, and the walls fell down, and the battle was won. They had been defeated at Ai, sorely defeated, embarrassed, humiliated, put to shame. But they repented. They confessed. They were restored. They went, they fought, they won. They made a mistake. And now they've won again. Sound like anybody we know? You see... There never was a time when this chosen people of God was what they should be. There never was a time when they achieved and arrived at the point God wanted them to be at. But you see, God was committed to them and God acted in their behalf. And they made a strange alliance, but they had a strong Lord who saw them through their mistake to His glory because they were committed to Him. Then in verses 28 to 39, here is a solid campaign. I like Joshua for one reason, because Joshua did not stop short of doing what God told him to do. I have noticed a thing in the life of my, in my own life and in the life of many Christians that I've known, that we seem to get very easily satisfied with a little bit of success as Christians. That's, that's a shame. Because every, every victory, every success, everything we do in the Lord's will that God blesses is just a step leading toward the next and toward the next and toward a goal that God wants us to move toward. And I like Joshua because he wasn't satisfied with a little bit of success. You see, Joshua could have stopped with Jericho, Ai, and Bethel, Jerusalem, Jarmuth, these Eglon, these other cities. Joshua could have just about stopped right there and been very comfortable for a very long time. But that wasn't God's best for his life, and that wasn't God's will for his people. And rather than enjoying what the world would call a great victory, Joshua just went about and continued in the same direction obeying God and doing what God wanted him to do. From this great campaign and this victory where these five kings and their armies were destroyed, Joshua moved on. He went to Libna, another city, smote it with the edge of the sword and obeyed as the Lord had told him to do. He went from Libna to Lachish and from Lachish uh, there was a minor distraction and Another king attacked him, not willing to wait to be attacked, the king of Gezer. And he defeated them. And then he went to Eglon and Hebron and Debir. And on and on he went, following at the Lord's command, doing what the Lord had said, not willing to settle for anything less than total obedience to what God wanted him to do. And here was a solid campaign. And is it not easy? Every time in every Christian's life, in the life of every church, wherever you've been a church member through your Christian life, 
doesn't, doesn't it happen that when there's some kind of an obstacle between us and the Lord or there's some kind of a great need in the life of a church or whatever that when we have met, met it and God is blessed and God's seen us through it and God's given us the victory that we just breathe a huge sigh of relief and we get satisfied and then we don't understand why we're not really happy. It's because we stop short of what God wants us to do. How much is enough for First Baptist Church of Yukon? When do we stop trying? When do we ease off? When do we back up? When do we look back when everybody within the realm of the ministry of this church is saved? That's when. And nothing less will do. A thousand in Sunday school, which we will average during the calendar year of 1980, is not enough. Two thousand in Sunday school is not enough. And if there is a church in America which has no limit to its potential, it is this church. I grew up in a town in East Texas that was this size with no more Baptist in it than this town has. It supported 13 Southern Baptist churches. What's enough? Nothing is enough until the last soul has been won to Jesus. That's when we'll stop. But we don't have a guarantee that God will give us that much time because Jesus is coming again. And that's why we press on. That's why we look forward. In my Bible readings this morning, I'm in the middle chapters of Numbers, and it always happens this way. Read Numbers 11 to 15. And the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they, they were being provided for. God gave them manna from heaven and, and sweet, pure water from a stone in the desert. They had everything they needed, but they weren't satisfied with it. It wasn't enough. And Numbers says the mixed multitude, the ones they never should have allowed to be among them in the first place, the mixed multitude began to complain and began to look backward to Egypt. And the mixed multitude said, Why, we've been in this stinking desert, and we hadn't had anything to eat but that junk on the ground every morning. We want some meat. Let's go back to Egypt. And that mixed multitude infected the people of God. They began to murmur. They began to complain. And any time that happens, in any format, for any reason, it is sin. Let all things be done without murmurings and complainings, period. No qualifying statements, period. It always happens that way. We decide to be satisfied with less than God's best, and we're sorry for it. There's another thing to note, and that is that in Joshua and Numbers in the New Testament... There is never a place when God allowed His people to allow the mixed multitude to determine what His people did. That is why we will go forward and not back. I'm not interested in being a big wheel. I've, not, I've got no ambitions in life beyond pastoring the local church in this local church. Those that go around in circles, they're big wheels. I don't want to go around in circles. I want to go forward. 
That is why we will go forward. What will we wait on? We will wait on the command of God, and then we will move, because I'm more afraid of God, as I'm sure you are, than I am of anything else. Let us never be satisfied with less than the best. But that's never been done before. Or we've never done it before. Ralph Neighbor, a good Southern Baptist missionary to Latin America, has written a book published by Zondervan called The Seven Last Words of the Church. We never did it that way before. George Bernard Shaw, quoted often by Robert Kennedy before his death, said this, Some men look as, see things as they are and say, Why? I dream things that never were and say, Why not? Will you join me in looking at our needs and our possibilities and our future and saying, Why not? I'm not really disturbed that nobody's ever done anything before. And, of course, that's really an unrealistic way to look at things because God's got enough folks doing things His way that we'll never do anything that's never been done before, but we can try. Try to do it God's way. Try to obey God. Try to go forward. Try to care more about what God thinks than what anybody else thinks. That's our task, to obey God. May we not be satisfied with a victory, but let us press forward toward the goal that God has for us. Then in verses 40 to 43, here is a simple obedience. Now, you know, history would have recorded Joshua as a success whether he'd done everything he was supposed to do or not. Uh, we would look toward Joshua with very positive feelings no matter what he had done after this point. But this very eloquent commentary about Joshua, verses 40 to 43. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south and of the vale and of the springs and all their kings. He left none remaining but un utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Joshua smote them from Kadesh Barnea, even unto Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even unto Gibeon, and all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp at Gilgal. Somehow, during their travels, they always came back to Gilgal. Gilgal was the place of salvation. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of restoration. The place of obedience. The symbol of God's presence. And after this, when they made the tragic mistake of a treaty with Gibeon, after that, they came back to Gilgal again and again. And again, and they proceeded from there to obey God. I don't know what, what we're going to do in the near future, but I know it's going to be spectacular because God's in it. I'll let you in on a little information that we'll be making more public toward the end of the year. God forgive us, but when we took a realistic look at our needs and our ministries and, our, and projected the bare minimum of what God wanted us to do as a church this year in March, and the church 
the committee and the church and everybody else went for wholeheartedly to adjust our budget to a figure 51.5% above what it was last year. 51.5%. On the committee, uh, there was very little real belief among any of us who were involved that we would really be able to do that. Going from 3200 a week to 5000 a week, no way, right? Well, I want to tell you something. God forgive all of us, and if you need to confess it as sin and ask God to forgive you along with some of the rest of us, you go right ahead. Folks, we did it. We did it. We are going to make that 51.5% increase. Well, I'll say it. I have heard the last. I've never said anything like this as a pastor before. I'm saying it tonight. I have heard the last of this garbage that, well, people just didn't want the church to go down the drain. Folks, you don't count for an $80,000 increase in contribution with a few people digging a little deeper. That is not what happened. We obeyed God, God intervened, and God did it. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I have never in my life from churches I pastored in college running 15 in Sunday school to the First Southern Baptist Church in Dell City with 10,000 members, the First Baptist Church of Dallas with 20,000 members, I have never known of a church that increased their giving 50% in one year. Now, can God do anything God wants to do? I believe He's going to. Why do we have to find a human explanation for everything that happens? I, I don't really get upset and been out of shape too much anymore. But if I wanted to, I would, get up and, I would get upset about people trying to find a human explanation for what God does. God has done it. No austerity program. No increased concern on the part of people who wanted to bail us out. No committee, nor this pastor, is responsible for what has happened. God did it. That's why I'm not the least bit concerned about the future. Because whatever God leads us to do, God's going to take care of it. It's just that simple. Well, climb down off of the soapbox. Are there any questions, comments? concerning Joshua 10 or any of the various and other sundry rabbits we've pursued tonight. Well, have you ever heard anybody say, uh, I'll just uh, live my Christianity in front of so-and-so because I don't want to offend them? Have you ever seen anybody want to Jesus like that? See, we need to learn. That's just a one, one for instance, but it's a big area in the life of most Christians. It is no act of love and friendship to anybody for you to withhold from them the only thing you've got that they need, and that's Jesus. Jesus Christ didn't rely on a righteous life to witness to people. He opened his mouth, and if Jesus had to do it, I imagine we're going to. You know, that's an example. Uh, I've, I've got a friend in, involved in a business that is sometimes difficult for a Christian to be involved in. And it's not anything immoral or dishonest, but it's distasteful for a Christian to deal. And there are a lot of businesses like that. And this man told me recently, 
He said, I've been bothered by this ever since I started trying to grow as a Christian and walk with the Lord. I've been bothered by this, this certain area of his business. I've been bothered by it. I was uncomfortable with it. Every time I had to be involved in it, it really, really bothered me. He said, but it means 15% of my income. He said, I made a decision two weeks ago to do away with it. And I don't understand why. He said, I'm not like this. I'm not spiritual. I don't understand why. But I'm not worried. He don't need to be worried. He did what God said. God's going to take care of him. And that walk, his walk with the Lord and his inner peace is worth more than 15% of his income. Uh, friendships, associations, activities uh, make any sense? In fact, you know, on a practical basis, these things we talked about tonight, alliances with the world and God having to come to the rescue and all of that, that pertains more specifically to each one of us than it does to the church as a body. Because the church... Uh, church is not going to buy stock in a, in a liquor company or, 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 or buy stock in a publishing house that prints pornographic literature. You know, the church is not going to get itself involved in that kind of thing. But a church body can compromise in the name of, you know, not offending anybody. Well, Jesus doesn't qualify. If that's, take, if that's what it takes to be good, then you can forget Jesus Christ. He didn't make it. Uh, in the name of that kind of thing, the church can leave itself without any witness. Because if we're not different, what do we have to offer? You know, and it's, it's almost like we go to a lost world and we say, we've got what you need, but we're not going to tell you what it is. You know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, all this talk of people say, well, I just can't witness. Every day of your life you witness. I've never known a bashful person that had trouble sharing good news. And all that really says is how they feel about Jesus. Make any sense? What else? Sandy. Thou shalt not kill as thou shalt do no murder. Uh, you know, it is not a, a biblical position. The sanctity of life, and you know, some people who are Christians carry the sanctity of life to not step in on a harmful insect. The sanctity of life is not a biblical position. The holiness of God is a biblical position. The righteousness of God. Judgment on sin. That's a biblical position. The word in the Ten Commandments that in your Bible is thou shalt not kill is thou shalt do no murder. Now, uh, you get it gets pretty bloody over here in the Old Testament. But I want you to understand who it was these people were, were fighting and who they were trying to replace. They were trying to replace a people whose whole religion was built around sexual immorality and human sacrifice. Every good Amorite family that believed and followed their religion would sacrifice their firstborn child on an altar, kill them, kill that child themselves on an altar to their God. Every good Amorite girl would have sex with any man in the world at any time in the name of her God. And you don't reform that kind of a thing. You know, it's a thing you pick up reading through the Old Testament. The people of God were always turning away from God and turning their backs on God. But the, the, the followers of false religion are 100% consistent all the time. Now, I don't, that's bad for us, but that's the way it is. 
the, the false religionists are always more consistent than we are. And they were dealing with nations of people that had no respect for human life, human sacrifice. Several times a year, the most beautiful young girl that could be found in that area, wherever the worship was, would be sacrificed to their God. And they were, they were dealing with people in the land whose whole way of life was immorality and murder. Now, God told them to eradicate that thing from the land. You know, we think life is sacred, and so does God. So why, in the name of the sacredness of life, would we preserve people that take life capriciously every time they turn around? That's why capital punishment is valid, and it ought to be. And you cannot go to the Bible without tearing it to shreds and build a case against capital punishment. Uh, now, Sandy, reading on through the Old Testament, you'll find out that they did not eradicate the enemy. When Joshua became an old man and he committed the leadership to younger men uh, that didn't know God as personally as he did, they did not eradicate that from the land. In the whole history of Israel, you know, all the way through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, they're worshiping Baal, they're following Milcom and Molech. Those are these gods of the Amorites. You'll read in the prophets and you'll find how God says it is an abomination to me when my people offer their children to Molech. You see, they were human sacrifice, the people of Israel, because they allied themselves with the world and didn't eradicate the enemy the way God told them to. Does that make any, any sense? All right, you can see the link, the prayer list contained there. Uh, Lorndale Taylor is in mercy hospital, uh, very ill. I doubt very seriously if there's much need in anybody going by. I, I'm sure that they, if there are visitors, they want that drastically limited. I know the doctor does, and uh, Lorndale would not be able to talk, and he's not feeling well, but you might very seriously uh, write them a prayer gram, call Margaret, but I think a letter might even be better. Margaret is spending so much time at the hospital that when she comes home she needs to rest physically needs to rest but I would encourage you to write prayer grams to the tailors uh, Cliff Anderson this was brought to my attention today is a teacher at the high school who's uh, got some kind of a congenital problem he's had all his life as well as some other things that they're going to try to correct two or three uh, different things by surgery uh, Friday at Deaconess Mart Odom, Steve Odom, who was here for our discipleship conference breakthrough in the spring from Louisville, Kentucky. Steve's uh, dad uh, has a massive malignancy in a lung, and the, his wh whether they can do anything about it or not is uncertain at this point. Um, there are others you can see listed here. Are there any prayer concerns you'd bring to our attention that we need to pray about tonight? Okay, Pat Rector and her family. Okay, thank you, Ron. Who else? Okay. What else would you mention? Gene Smith is uh, the head football coach at UConn High School. His wife died last 